Well, good morning, everybody. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 1, which uh, John Nielsen already encouraged you to keep your Bibles open there. So we'll begin in John 1, 1 to 3. Let me read these verses for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Well, for the next three weeks, we're going to spend time unpacking the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Our aim in this kind of mini-series is to somehow get our finite minds wrapped around the infinite person of Jesus. Our focus this morning will be obviously on verses 1 to 3, which I just read. The Gospel of John is a book of the Bible that's often been studied by many people. It's a well-crafted story with a very specific purpose in mind. It appears that God's designed purpose for this Gospel narrative is to enable us to respond with faith and belief in the person of Jesus. And so in John 20, 30 to 31, John tells us why he wrote this book. This is what he says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John's telling us that his aim in recording these things as opposed to all the other things that Jesus did, which makes your mind just go to all sorts of different places. What else did Jesus do that's not recorded here? John says he recorded these things here to awaken faith and belief in Jesus so that one may obtain eternal life in him. And so if you're here this morning and you're investigating the claims of Christianity... We're glad you're here. You are welcome to be part of this community. With us, you've arrived at a portion of Scripture that will give you some answers to this person that Christians make such a big deal about. Maybe you're here this morning and you've just begun your life as a Christian. You've just given your life over to Him and you're looking to grow in your understanding of what it means to follow Him. These verses are a wonderful starting point for you. However, this book is also meant to sustain the faith of the person who's been a Christian for many, many years. If that's you, do not just tune out because you've studied these verses before, you've heard these things before. These words are for you as well. You see, once we give our lives to Christ, we never leave behind the need to be reminded of the things that first awakened our faith. You see, it's the things that awakened our faith That will sustain our faith for the long haul. This series through John 1, 1 to 18 will help each of us take a little step farther in getting our finite minds wrapped around the infinite person of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to begin with asking you a question. I want you to think of the answer in your mind. The question is this. What do you believe about Jesus If a neighbor or a friend, co-worker, or family member sat down from across at your coffee table, your, your dining room table at home and said to you, what do you believe about Jesus? Would you be able to give an answer that you feel confident in? 
Would your answer be biblical? Could you point to a passage of Scripture that would say, this is what I believe about him? You see, the weight of these first three verses here of John forces us to do a thorough examination of whether the Jesus that we believe in is actually the Jesus of the Bible. Or is the Jesus that we believe in somehow smaller? Is he different? You see, what we believe about him is the most important thing about us. If we adopt a view of him that is less than biblical, it will have damaging effects both in the here and now and in the life to come. And so these first three verses here of John take our small and often puny views about Jesus and put some serious gunpowder right underneath of them and they just explode. If we're willing to kind of just slowly and deliberately look at what John is teaching us here, our current view of Jesus is just going to rise to heights that we never thought it would be before. These sentences here at the beginning of John's gospel are some of the most compact, pulsating, theological sentences in all of Scripture that elevate Jesus. Some of you are familiar with the classic C.S. Lewis story, Prince Caspian. And at one point in the story, you'll remember that Lucy returns to Narnia and she has an interaction with Aslan in which her view of him is different than what she remembers from her first time in Narnia. The dialogue goes something like this. Aslan says to her, Welcome, child. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered the lion. Not because you are, asked Lucy. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. My hope is that as we study these verses together, we will all kind of have a Lucy-like experience, that our view and understanding of Jesus will just get bigger and bigger and bigger as we unpack these things. This morning, there are four things from these three verses that I want to highlight. So let's begin looking at them in verse 1. The first thing we notice about these verses is the repetition of the term word. It's there all over the place, but particularly in verse 1. One of the most important things we need to know about this term word is actually found down in verse 14. So scan your eyes down to verse 14. It says there, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this is, of course, referring to the man Jesus, who though he was God, took on flesh And lived at a certain moment in human history. That term word also has a rich Old Testament background that John is drawing upon to help us understand Jesus. In the book of Genesis, uh, we have the detailed account of the creation. And if we look back to Genesis 1, what we'd see is the repeated words of, and God said. You see, when God speaks powerful words, things spring into existence. He created everything out of nothing, simply by speaking words, powerful words. Also in the Old Testament, uh, we have prophets who are used by God to speak his words to the people. And so it's through his communication through prophets like Abraham and Moses, Isaiah and Ezekiel, that God relates personally to his people through words. And so in the book of prophecies in the Old Testament, they're filled with the phrase, and God said. And the word of the Lord came to. God used prophets 
to speak his words to his people and to create things. And then, of course, we have the word of God right before us this morning. And so with that background of the Old Testament in view, when John refers to Jesus as the word that was made flesh, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the final, he's the ultimate, he's the capstone communication of God relating to his creation. Listen to this verse from Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. God relates personally to his people through words that were first delivered by the prophets. And in these last days, which is now, he's spoken to us in the word made flesh, which is Jesus. Have you ever thought of Jesus in that way? That he is the fullest and most complete communication of God to his creation about himself? You see, our small and kind of puny views of Jesus often lock him into human categories and definitions. And when we do that, on many levels we have lost sight of the fact that Jesus is not like us. But let's allow verse 1 to take us even one step farther in understanding this word. The word made flesh, which we now know is Jesus, was in the beginning, he says there. The sense of this verse is that the word always was wasing. Which I know sounds a little bit funny, but what John is communicating here is that the Son of God, Jesus, has always been. He is eternal. There was never a time when he did not exist. To say that the Son of God is eternally, that he's eternally existed, means that he literally has existed always outside the limitations of space and time. Now, it's difficult for us to get our minds wrapped around something that is not limited by time or space. I began this sermon a few minutes ago. I will end this sermon at one point. Everything has a beginning and an end. It's limited by that. But what this verse is telling us is that Jesus is not limited by time, by space. See, our minds can only reach so far back. But that's not so with Jesus. He's always existed. And so when the word becomes flesh, it is the eternal one breaking into the limitations of the time and space continuum in order to communicate and reveal himself to his creation. A visual way that's always helped me understand this is to picture him basically above the storyline of history. So in a sense, he can see the Garden of Eden and the new heavens and the new earth all at one time. He's above all of it. And he's not surprised by anything that happens in between. In between. The future is not open to God. He knows all of it. And the amazing thing then is what we understand from John is that before time began, he determined that a certain moment in history that he would send forth his son Jesus, he would break into finite. 
It's amazing reality. How would he do that? Why would he do that? So when we see Jesus as an actual man that's portrayed here in the gospel narratives, we're not just observing another human being, someone who's like us. We are, in fact, beholding the one who has eternally existed. He's not like us. Well, that's the first thing we understand. He is eternal. The Son of God is eternal. Secondly, it's from the second part of verse 1. It says there that the Word was with God. He repeats these words again in verse 2. And he says, he was in the beginning with God. And what does it mean that Jesus was with God? Were they just kind of hanging out in eternity together? Just chumming around? Well, these words for us provide some of the building blocks for our understanding of the Trinity, which John will give further definition to throughout the book. The fact that Jesus was with God in the beginning is saying that there has always been a personal, unique, and intimate relationship that is shared within the Godhead. God has eternally existed in a personal relationship in his own being. And so in Genesis 1, when he created everything, he didn't do so because he had a felt need. He didn't need his existence to be validated by another thing or another person. He is completely independent from creation for all of eternity. And he's done so in relational harmony within himself. Now, it's difficult for our minds to get wrapped around the Trinity. But I want to summarize it in four basic statements of what Christians believe about the Trinity. The first one is this. There is only one true and living God. Christians are monotheists. We're not tritheists. We're not polytheists. We don't believe in many gods. We believe that there is one true and living God who is deserving of our worship and adoration. Secondly then, this one God has eternally existed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, uh, the, the New Testament affirms the deity of each of them without compromising on monotheism. The third statement is this. These three persons are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature. And so within the Trinity, they have a unity without uniformity, and they have a diversity without division. Fourth statement. While each person is fully God, the persons are not identical. So they have very specific differing roles that each plays in accomplishing their unified purpose. Now those are the beginning building blocks for the Christian's understanding of the Trinity. And so this simple phrase saying that the word was with God is beginning to scratch the surface on our understanding of the Trinity. What this means though is that the Son of God has existed eternally in a unique relationship with God. Which we call the Trinity. Now, you may forget some of these things I'm saying to you this morning. The most important thing you need to understand is this, that Jesus is part of the Trinity. He's existed in that way for all of eternity. The third thing is connected. 
So far we have that the Son of God is eternal. And secondly now we have that the Son of God has existed in a unique relationship with God. The third thing is in the third part of verse 1, which reads this. And the Word was God. The exact meaning here is that the Word was God in both essence and in character. Jesus is God in every way possible, though he was a separate person from God the Father. This phrase perfectly preserves Jesus' separate identity while clearly stating that he is God. In Hebrews 1, again, we read that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. And so when he takes on human flesh and becomes a man, he retains his deity He retains his deity while becoming what he was not. He is the God-man. And so if we want to know what God is like, we need to look no further than Jesus. He is the one who perfectly reveals God to us. He is God. The fourth statement is here in verse 3. So turn your eyes down to verse 3. It reads like this. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The fourth thing we learn about Jesus here is that he is the creator God. The fact that Jesus is the creator is affirmed throughout the New Testament in places like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 and Revelation 4, each of which affirm that Jesus is not part of the created order, but is himself the creator God. He's the divine instrument of creation. Now think about this with me for just a minute. Imagine with me that this skylight that's above us here would just open up and all of us somehow are just kind of sucked up into the skylight and we're raised up above the earth, up into the atmosphere where planets are. And then we go even farther out to the galaxy. And even farther beyond the galaxy, out to where there's the universe and many other galaxies exist. Scientists have discovered that there are around 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. And that there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. Now I'm not a mathematician, but what I do know is that's a lot of stars. And what verse 3 is affirming to us here is that Jesus created all of that. And he put the stars exactly where he wanted them. And the planets are placed just perfectly right where he wants them to be. Not only did Jesus create the macrocosm of the universe and the millions of galaxies, he also created the microcosm of the atom. So the tiny molecules that make up the water that each of us drank this morning is it's not the product of some scientific process. Jesus is the one who created hydrogen and oxygen and then allows them to be formed together, combined to make water. And so he creates the entire universe of the macrocosm, but he also creates the microcosms and he's holding all of it together. And if he took his hand away for one millisecond, everything would turn into chaos, spinning out of control. Jesus is the creator God. Well, let's take a step back from the fire hose of those first three verses. There's a lot there. 
four things that really are meant to kind of explode our view about Jesus. They act as that gunpowder underneath there. First is that the Son of God is eternal. Second, the Son of God has always had a unique and personal relationship with God. Third, Jesus is God. Fourth, Jesus is the creator God. Is that the Jesus that you believe in? I asked you in the beginning what you believe about him. Did any of your thoughts turn to those four things? Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. I can take that risk of saying maybe they didn't because my thoughts don't automatically turn to those things. And I think that what John is setting out to do in these first few verses is literally to explode our preconceived ideas about Jesus and to set us straight on who he is so that everything in the rest of this book is viewed from this mountain peak, this high top of where John has just taken us to. Just recently, my wife and I, along with some good friends, hiked to the top of an 11,000-foot peak in Colorado. It was a great experience. And as we kind of meandered, and it was really a meandering up this peak, we're beginning to feel the oxygen kind of just lacking from our lungs and pressure. Our legs feel like we're walking through mud. We're feeling dizzy, feeling sick. And the only thing that's keeping us going in that time was getting to the top of the summit so that we can see the expanse of mountain views around us. Finally, after about two hours, we got to the top. And as we did, the the view was incredible. 360 degrees around us, these mountain peaks. What John has done here in these few verses is he's walking up the mountain peak with us. These are not easy things to get our head wrapped around. But he's kind of walking us through, helping us make the next step. Keep going, keep going. You might feel dizzy, you might feel lost, but get to the mountain peak. And when we get to the mountain peak with John, we're not just seeing other mountain peaks. What we're seeing is Jesus in all of his glory. It's an amazing view. I want you to notice where John begins his gospel. He begins from a very different vantage point than any of the other gospel writers. So in the book of Matthew, Matthew begins with this really long genealogy of Jesus. Mark begins with John the Baptist. Luke begins with the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. And John here, in a very surprising fashion, he takes us back even farther and farther. And in so doing, what he's doing is he's going back to the beginning and he's saying now, everything that God is doing in Jesus... All the redemptive work that's taking place in Jesus was planned before creation existed. It was all planned. And so John's desire here in starting with this account of Jesus' earthly life, rooting it in history, is to cause us to see that the one who changed water into wine is the one who has existed eternally. The one who heals the man that's born blind is God in human flesh. The man who dies on the cross is the creator God. The man who rises from the dead is the unique person of the Trinity. If you've not gotten the point yet this morning, let me make it crystal clear for us. The, the word made flesh, Jesus, is not like us. 
well, why do we need to know these things? Why is it so important that John begins his gospel by walking up that mountain peak with us and showing us at least four incredible things about him? I want to mention two kind of interconnected things. And the first one is this. Our insufficient views of Jesus must be transformed. All of us have insufficient views of him. We've conceived of Jesus from a human vantage point. And so in a sense, we're we're down in the valley trying to get him instead of being on the mountain peak with John. We've developed small views of Jesus because we've conceived of him. We've created him in our own image. We actually want him to be more like us instead of us being like him. So maybe you think he's a bit like Superman. You know, he's got some pretty incredible powers. He's still just basically human. Or maybe you think he's a bit like an old senile grandfather. Sitting in a rocking chair, just rocking back and forth, waiting to answer your requests, to rub you on the head and say, attaboy, go get him. Or maybe you think he's just a little bit out of touch with reality, your reality. Things in your life haven't gone very well, and you wonder if he cares at all. See, on some levels, we've all got insufficient views of Jesus. And each of our hearts is a desire to conceive of him in ways that seem consistent with our lives. And so he must like the things that you like. He gets angry at the things that you get angry at. He likes the people you do and doesn't like the people that you don't. Even farther, when we do wrong, we assume that He basically understands our course of action and he's not really going to make a big deal out of it. If we trace that line of thinking back far enough, we'd end up in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempts Eve with a very specific temptation. The carrot that Satan dangles in front of Eve is saying, Eve, you can become like God. And since that time, Every single human being has tried to take that bait, tried to be God, tried to put ourselves on the throne, trying to run our lives with no regard for Him. And so what's resulted now is we've kind of flipped the tables on God and we say, God, we want you to be like us. Try to tame Him. Try to fashion Him after our own image, but it's utterly foolishness. We're so flip things around in our life that we are in danger of believing in a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so our insufficient views of him must be transformed to what the Bible actually says about him and to understand and live as if he is God and we are not. That leads me to the second reason why we need to come up to this mountain peak with John. If Jesus is, is all of these things in verses 1 to 3, which we believe that he is, then he dethrones all of our functional saviors. He dethrones all of our functional saviors. The good news of the gospel is proclaimed in such a way that Jesus is God's solution to man's greatest dilemma. The dilemma that we find ourselves in is that we are separated from our creator God because of our sin. 
We're facing the wrath of God for it. And so every single one of us is in need of a rescue. And the rescue then that we so desperately need is offered to us in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. In John 14, 6, he proclaims this. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is God's own self-sacrifice to atone for our sins. Jesus is the one and only solution to our greatest problem. And so the sinful inclination that exists in our hearts is to believe that we can save ourselves or that other things can save ourselves. And so some pastors call these our functional saviors. A functional savior is anything we depend upon to provide for us what only Jesus can. Author Jerry Bridges says that these functional saviors become the source of our identity, our security and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. These saviors make us feel good. They make us feel righteous. They control us. We deify them. And so a functional savior could be things such as career success, having enough money in the bank, having a clean house and perfect children, physical conditioning, sports. Even our own efforts of obedience to God can become a functional savior. Anything we depend upon that gives us a sense of righteousness on our own efforts or in something else as a functional savior. And so inside of each of our hearts is this kind of self-justification. It's festering in each of our hearts and it manifests itself in all kinds of different functional saviors. Some even things that look good. But in the end, anything anything that we look to and rely upon for our righteousness, besides Jesus' righteousness, is acting as a functional savior and it must be rejected. It must be dethroned. And so I think and I believe that what these first three verses in John 1 is doing is protecting us from deifying anything but Jesus. He is God. And nobody or nothing else is. They teach us that the only one who deserves to be on the throne is him. He deserves our worship. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our affection. He dethrones all of our functional saviors because he is our only hope of salvation. And so the natural question at this point is pretty simple, but what are you deifying in your life that needs to be shattered What are you and I so preoccupied in our lives and relying upon to say, if I just have this, I am righteous? What are we preoccupied with? May God use the sledgehammer of these verses here to literally destroy our insufficient views of Jesus and to shatter our functional saviors so that we can be established in the truth of who Jesus is as the one and only true living God.
Jesus, the Word made flesh, is not like us. In just a few minutes, we're going to read, or excuse me, we're going to sing a song called The Risen Christ. And as we do so, let us worship Him in reverence and awe and wonder. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus to this earth and that he lived the perfect life, the one that we were supposed to live. And on the cross, he paid for our sins. Help us to repent and to respond with faith in what you have done for us, Jesus, and in who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.